Hey there. Thanks for joining us at Risen King Church for our weekly podcast. We pray you meet God and know that you are loved today. Be sure to visit us at risenking.life to take all of your next steps and follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube. Enjoy the message. Today we look at uh, our last in a series on God's blueprint for renewal. And we're looking at specifically a question that, that I really, I'd like for each of you to think of. <laughs> it's kind of a complicated question that I've written, but it's, what do I want you to want in our church as we build for the future? So I, I, I'm really wanting you to want as much as I do for Jesus to show up. That when we gather together as a church, that we, we meet Jesus in such a way together that we then know how to do his work in the world, that we meet Jesus in his church. There's a, there's a sense in which Jesus leads and Jesus reigns or rules in his church as a very present reality. But even more than that, as we receive him, he is distributing his own ministry abilities uh, we call these spiritual gifts, but they are the ministry abilities of the anointed Christ in your life that only come together as we come together as the church of Jesus Christ. And then as we develop these ministry abilities of Jesus, then our ministry has amazing and, and remarkable impact in the world. And the reason I'm saying this is that we want to meet Jesus and we want to be led by Jesus and we want to learn from Jesus how to do the work that he's doing in the world is, is really because how can there be an adequate church to respond to these present circumstances that we find ourselves in? A world that is clearly rocked by an, a virus a world that is yet to see all the ramification of the financial uh, fallout of this virus, a world in which we have seen that there is truly injustice and it's not hidden anymore and it's creating greater and greater tension in not only our society but all around the world. So the only way that we can face these present circumstances and be the church that can can respond appropriately to them is if we have a thing called a revival dynamic, a revival dynamic in our midst. And it's another way of looking at a great outpouring of the Holy Spirit, of course, but we're talking about not just a single meeting or a single series of meetings. We're talking about a revival dynamic that is sustainable in our midst. And I don't think we need just one great meeting or one great season. I think we need this dynamic to exist as the very heart and life of our church and of our lives together. I think you need this personally, and I think our church needs it, and I know our community needs it. So I begin with this idea of a revival dynamic. The whole goal, the whole work of the Holy Spirit is to make Jesus real to you so that then you can make the real Jesus known to others. And the question is, is always, what is, what is it that's most real to you? Obviously, COVID-19 is real. Racism is real. Our nation's division and tension is real. The financial news by itself can be tension-producing. But the question in the midst of this current reality is really, are you experiencing that Jesus is more real or is Jesus less real than all these current challenges? Or, or have the challenges become more real and Jesus less so? You see, the work of the Holy Spirit, if you, if you both separate yourself out and allow the Holy Spirit to work, do you know what he'll do? He'll show you that Jesus is bigger. He'll show you that Jesus is able. He will show you that the impossible is nothing for Jesus. But you have to be able to receive from the Holy Spirit. You have to permit and make space for the Holy Spirit 
to work that revival dynamic in your life. And what I'm asking, what I'm, I'm wanting you to want is not only that he works it in your life, but he works it in all of our lives at the same time. We see this in the results of Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit baptized his church in Jerusalem, there was this revival dynamic. All five of the Spirit's operation in the church were manifesting at the same time. And, and, and really, they were the five indicators of the presence of the king. Even though Jesus had died, Jesus had been resurrected, he had ascended into heaven, yet he was real and present in that first century church, in that church that was a result of Pentecost. And all five of these elements were manifesting at the same time. There was a deep devotion to, to the apostles' teaching, but we're really talking about in-depth teaching and a deep regard for that teaching. There was deep regard for one another. They, they, they entered into each other's lives in deep friendship and fellowship. There was a, a worship vibrancy in terms of prayer and, and worshiping daily, both formally and informally. There was a kind of evangelism that was so effective that daily people were being added to their number. And there was a social concern. They, didn't, they weren't just concerned to get people to go to heaven. They they wanted heaven to invade earth. They wanted what was true of the kingdom to be manifesting in their midst. So their social concern was revealed in their compassion for each other. And their compassion produced social healing. All five of these were there at the same time. Not a one of them were missing. Because when there's a revival dynamic, all five of these are in operation. And as we face the future together, the uncertainties that are ahead and the challenges that are ahead, we need all five of these fully operational in our midst. And they're only fully operational if the king is present with his people. And it's the Holy Spirit who makes the reality of the king's presence known to us and leads us, and rules in us, and reigns in us, and brings what is true of heaven into our community in a way that is visible, is remarkable. Nothing less will do, friends. And so I've saved the last of the elements, which is actually the first one that is mentioned, but I've saved it for last because all the others are based on this one. There was an extraordinary regard for the truth. There was, there was such attention and devotion to the revelation that had been given to the apostles, to the gospel of Jesus Christ revealed through the apostles' teaching. And from that truth, there were extraordinary results. This is really, I, I have to admit, this is one of the great longings of my heart. It's the thing I've prayed for ever since I began preaching regularly as a 24-year-old. Not just to see the ordinary results of communication, or not even just to see the ordinary results of, of God's word being preached and there being a conviction, but actually to see the extraordinary results that can come when the Holy Spirit is operating like he did at Pentecost. There is a, not only a revelation of truth, but there's a reception of that truth, as there was in those days. Now, here's what Jesus, here's how Jesus looks at the truth, and this is how Jesus looks at the communication and the reception of the truth in John 17. We've been looking at Jesus' high priestly prayer quite often because in reality, the Holy Spirit will only bless and he will only anoint and he will only make extraordinary the vision and the values of Jesus. He's not going to bless our agenda for the church. He's not going to bless 
our programs and our strategies just because we want them to be blessed and we want success. It's only as we ourselves in our identity and the identity of the church, it's only as we are yielded to the values of Jesus, then the Holy Spirit who makes Jesus real will make that reality present in our lives and in our church's lives, and then that will transform the world. But we have to align ourselves with what Jesus says, this is what I value. This is what I care about. This is coming out of his character. This is coming out of his glory. There's weight to this. And you know, this is his, this is his prayer. I mean, this is his last prayer before the cross. These are the kind of ultimate, you could say, values that Jesus has. So here's what he says, speaking to his father. I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me. And they have kept your word. Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you. For I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them and come to know in truth that I came from you, and they have believed that you sent me. I am praying for them. I'm not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost, except the son of destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled. So, Here is what Jesus is saying, is that he is present, and he's our king. He is present with his people, and his word is the word of his presence. And in some ways, he's saying that what is true of the kingdom and and the kingdom reality itself is not present with us unless the king is manifestly present by our high regard and our devotion to His Word. Devoting ourselves to His Word, letting it dwell richly in our lives and in our hearts, and responding to it appropriately and adequately brings the kingdom. Manifests the King. Jesus said that His disciples are characterized. This is how you know that someone is his disciple. They're characterized by a knowledge of, but even more so by an acceptance and reliance on his words. So here's here's what Jesus is praying, and this is what Jesus is valuing in his church. This is his blueprint. This is what the Holy Spirit will equip and anoint, is a church that is seriously committed to the truth, not superficially committed, not just kind of, you know, a little bit committed to the truth, but rather seriously committed to the truth, and in the truth they find intense joy. This is is the diagnostic tool. Personally, am I committed seriously to the truth, or am I avoiding the truth? Am I unable because of distractions and because perhaps even demonic oppression, am I unable to meditate or, 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 or contain the truth of God's word or have any interest in the truth of God's word? But more than that, does his word produce in me an intense joy? Do I find myself hungering more and more because I know that my joy, that my satisfaction, my sense of Fulfillment is found in his word. That's what Jesus is asking the Father. He's asking for a deep commitment and an intense joy in the word that the Father gave to the Son. So in other words, you have to know enough of the truth so that you begin to sense the power of the truth. I have met people who are very informed of the Bible. I've met people who are very knowledgeable of the Bible, but they have never submitted to the power of the truth of his word. 
They stand in some ways as sovereigns themselves, as critics, as commentators over the word instead of being those who have come under the word, who have come to sense and experience the power of the word. And so when you see this blueprint that Jesus anoints by his spirit, where he becomes real through his word, and it's really these three elements are present. And they're present here in Jesus' prayer. That he's asking the Father that those who follow him would believe his word. That those who follow him would not just intellectually assent to it, but rather that they would actually receive the word. And that that would produce in them a keeping of his word. So let's look at those three together. So here here is the statement of what Jesus wants and what Jesus is praying for. This is what Jesus wants from our church. This is what Jesus wants from you. And so this is what I'm saying. I want you to want this. And that is to believe, to have a, a, a foundational belief, an unshakable belief that the truth, that the teaching that Jesus gave, that we have recorded that the teaching of Jesus is divine revelation, that it is authoritative, that it is absolute truth, and that it is the teaching that really not only gives you life, but it's also the teaching that guides your life, that it, it's life-giving and it's life-guiding. And, and, and without that belief, then nothing else will happen. None of the other four elements will be present not in any way that is transformative. Everything that's going to transform our personal lives, our church life, our community life, all flows out of us saying, here is my foundation. Here is what grounds me. Here is what I know to be true, that what Jesus teaches is authoritative, that it's absolute truth, and that it's teaching that both is life-giving, but it's also life-guiding. Well, this is, this is what Jesus prayed. This is what he asked would be true of us. They know that everything you have given me is from you. So Jesus is saying that every word he spoke is God's word. And then he said, and I gave it to the apostles, for I have given them the words you gave me. And then notice what happens. They receive them, and they have come to know in truth that I came from you, and they have believed that you sent me. And then in verse 20, he begins to pray not for his present apostles or disciples, but he begins to pray for those who would hear the apostles' teaching about him and that they would receive and believe and keep his words just like that first century band of apostles did. Jesus, before the cross, was praying that you would get this kind of regard for his word. Well, let's look at it in this way. In Acts 2, it manifests in the apostles' life and it manifested in the church's life. The apostles were saying, what we're teaching is Jesus' teaching, and what Jesus is teaching is the Father's teaching. This is God's teaching. So Jesus had a view of the truth, a view of the truth that really existed in Christianity in our world pretty much up to about 200 years ago. And it was, the, it was the idea that Jesus's view of the truth, that it is direct revelation from God, must also be our view of the church, truth as the church, as individuals. Now, this isn't philosophical, but it's just kind of, kind of descriptive in a way to say that most of us understand that when it comes to truth, we have two categories that we relate things to. So we say this is objective truth, and we say this is subjective truth. So objective truth is, is something that's true whether I, whether I want it to be or not, whether I believe it to be or not. We, we say that this is true. It's, it, it is true not based on belief. It's not based on preference or opinion, but subjective truth has everything to do with how I feel about something. It, has, it comes from an opinion or a preference or a style. So 
Subjective truth would be something like this. Wow, I love that movie. Now, somebody else could say to you, man, I hated that movie. Or, or certain music styles, and you say, that is the best music I've ever heard. And somebody else says, that didn't even register with me. See, subjective truth has to do a lot with preference, has to do with style, has to do with personality. Here's the problem, is that before, in our world, religious truth was considered absolute truth. You see, even though there were different religions, no one said that they're all true. People said one is right and the others are wrong. But what's happened in the last couple of hundred years is that, that religious truth has actually been relegated to subjective truth. And what has been raised up to objective or true no matter what has been science. Anything that comes out of the realm of science is objective truth. Anything that comes out of the realm of religion is subjective truth. Now, this is somewhat a simplifying of history, but do you realize where science even came from? It was the particular view of Christianity and its view of reality, the worldview of Christianity, that actually was the birthing of science because there was an order to God's creation, because there was pattern in God's creation, men in, in, in all seriousness began to study and to try to understand the creation because of what they believed about the nature of God. But as science progressed, as, as humanism progressed in so many ways, and, and through different movements in the last 200 years, anything that is religious is seen as just an opinion, as seen as all equally true, which is about like saying all equally false. And so relegating religious truth instead of the way Jesus looked at this truth into an area of you can have your truth, you can have your thoughts, and that's fine as long as you don't impose them on me because your truth is a subjective truth. And so here's Jesus, not at all modern in this case, not at all acceptable in our secular society, but he's basically saying, as he's praying, if you want to be my church, you have to have my view of the truth. Now, for a lot of people, one is they really don't want to hear what Jesus has to say about truth, but again, this is what he prayed to his father. This is his value. This is when you build Jesus' church, you have to build it on Jesus' vision of the truth, and you have to build it on Jesus' values of the truth. But there is a modern view. And, and, and the truth is, we haven't always handled the truth very well at all. And so there is a, a modern complaint that it's dangerous to believe in absolute truth. It's dangerous to believe that something is true and something else is wrong. And so what has happened is, by saying every truth is equal, we have turned basically to run our society on the basis of making the highest values my, my own happiness, my own pleasure, and my own fulfillment. Now, I'm not sure that that has made life any less dangerous, nor am I certain that that has made it to where human beings aren't struggling in great ways in terms of disagreements, quarrels, anger, and, and even war. But yet for many modern people, the idea of actually fighting over or uh, being willing to die for religious truth is, is unthinkable. But what you, what you end up with is this. If there's nothing you believe so deeply and you value so greatly that you would die for it, then there's nothing in your life that really has ultimate meaning. And there's nothing in life that gives you really an ultimate sense of purpose or being. Yes, it's dangerous. Who says that believing something shouldn't be dangerous? 
But in a way, if you really understand the Christian message, it's dangerous not to believe in Christ. It's dangerous to your immortal soul. It's dangerous to your eternity. We're not talking about temporary inconveniences or temporary difficulties. We're talking about eternal separation from God. Because if you don't know Jesus, then God is a consuming fire. But if you have come to God through Jesus, then God is your father who has adopted you as a son and daughter and given you the full status of the firstborn son, the Lord Jesus Christ, joint heirs with him, co-heirs with him. So that's the truth that Jesus wants you to believe and the way he wants you to believe the truth. Because what he's saying in this is, is that there is a real content. It's not just saying, you know, I am a Christian, but actually knowing the content of the gospel, the content of the truth that sets you free or the truth that, that converts the soul. So you have to receive the truth. Notice Jesus said, I gave them words. The words I gave them. There's content there to be received. And so there's a personal experience with the truth. Truth isn't just information. It really is a power uh, and the words themselves have power over your life and over your future, but especially over your relationship and intimacy with God. And, he, and he, he declares in this prayer that his disciples have received the content that he gave to him. In other words, all the things that Jesus is doing, they have a meaning to them. His perfectly obedient life will be added to the account of sinners so that sinners are made righteous. His perfectly obedient death is a substitutionary death that Jesus is saying will pay for the sins of all who will believe in him. His resurrection from the dead is the the guarantee and the receipt that is his payment has been accepted. When he said it is paid in full, the resurrection says the Father stamps paid on every page of the book of our lives. And so you see, it's a personal experience, but it has content to it. It's not faith in faith. It's faith in what Jesus says, his life, his ministry, his death, his resurrection, his ascension means. It's a living truth. It's not, it's not something that you can just say, I know about this. It's something that has to be accepted. It's something that becomes at the center of your being the most trusted and relied on and depended on thing in your life. The problem with so many people is they don't understand the gospel is A to Z of the life of the Christian. It's not just the initiation it is the whole life, and it has, to be, it has to be accepted. It has to be trusted. Here, here is the thing I'm beginning to understand very clearly, is if people say, yeah, yeah, I know the gospel, they don't actually know the gospel. If, they, if they're running on to something else and, and not learning to trust, not allowing the words of the gospel to be living and active and, and, and satisfying their lives, they still haven't understood or grasped the gospel. There's a power in the words. Luther, Martin Luther had this great quote. A man's word is a little sound that flies into the air and soon vanishes. But the word of God is greater than heaven and earth, yea, greater than death and hell. For it forms part of the power of God and endures everlastingly. That is a wonderful understanding of how powerful every word of God is that comes into your life. Every word of God is more powerful than heaven and earth and will last longer than even this world that you and I live in and think is so real to us. See, part of the problem And why maybe we avoid God's word, even though it's so powerful, is when it comes into your life, it starts to tear things up. It starts to break things down. It starts to 
make real in your life things you've depended on that really are not dependable whatsoever. And then when it comes in your life, it, the Word wants to build new things and build new things up. One of my favorite uh, ways of looking this at this was uh, C.S. Lewis's little essay where he talks about you thought that God coming into your life, that there would be renovation. But the expectation, Lewis says, was that he was basically building a nice little cottage, a nice little bungalow. And instead, he starts breaking down all these walls and he takes down, you know, uh, even the, to the foundations and he strips your life down to the, to the very, you know, the studs and, and nothing left but certain walls. And even he starts to enlarge the footprint that you thought was going to be a cottage because his plan was to make you a mansion, to make you a castle for his dwelling. You and I have these small expectations of what the word can do. And God says, no, I'm not going to be satisfied with just building a cottage. I'm going to make you a mansion filled with my glory. So this is, this is what this means. This is what it means to really accept the word, to, to receive the word. Is it you, you allow it to remake your life. You allow it to to be at the center of your life. And you allow yourself to begin to discern a hunger, not just for what you know, but a hunger for more. You see, the blueprint of God, though, is, is when he's at work, he's not just making you hungry. He's starting to bring together people who hunger for the word of God, who who are, who are saying, I know that I can learn. I know that I can grow. I know that I can mature. So this becomes this hunger and this hunger ring for the, for the truth, for a deeper devotion to God's word, for a higher regard for his word, for saying, I'm not content with information I want to experience power. If this is the word that created the heavens and the earth, if this is the word that is everlasting, then I want that experience in my soul and my spirit, in my body. So I think what Jesus is trying to get across is the first evidence that truly the king is present is when we have this hunger for his word, which then begins to to give us a vision of his kingdom, getting a, a sense of what Jesus might do. I, I was doing a devotion this week, and, and I, I began to come across something in terms of prayer and in terms of communicating with God from his word and through his word that really struck me in the season that we're in right now. It is so easy when you're going through trauma, when you're going through hurt, when you're experiencing pain, it's so easy to focus on that pain and how do I get pain relief? Or if you've been treated unfairly or you look at the injustice in the world and you feel like it's all bearing down on you, it is so easy to get focused on how do I end this injustice? How do I, how do I at least make the world a bit fairer place? And when you look, it seems like the, the forces of evil and the forces of injustice and the forces of unfairness are always winning. And it's just so easy to get derailed in your spiritual life and, and, and to experience a level of attack that can discourage and disappoint you. And I've been reading through and studying through the letters of Paul, and I came to this situation that Timothy faced where he was in Ephesus. And Ephesus was this very, very pagan, overwhelmingly oppressive, demonically oppressive city. And here he was, a young pastor, having to stand between all these forces coming at the church, protect a young and vulnerable church, and also keep his own health and his own well-being at the same time, and it's really clear that he was utterly and completely overwhelmed by the situation. And Paul writes to him, not because Timothy is 
digging in and going to stay, he writes because Timothy wants to leave. He wants to give up. He wants to give in. And it was so powerful as I read his arguments to Timothy for staying and for not giving in and for not giving up. What he makes really clear is that when you are facing spiritual forces, spiritual attacks that are manifesting in injustice or manifesting in even COVID-19 and all the effects of that we're going to experience financially, physically, all of these things. This, this is a spiritual attack as well as it is physical and material and real. But yet you cannot fight spiritual sources merely by human regulations. You can somewhat restrain injustice. You can somewhat restrain maybe the, uh, some of the symptoms of disease and other things. But what we need is something more. We need... We need what Jesus has inaugurated. We need the kingdom of God. And see, what happens a lot of times is because we're in pain or because we're uncertain or because we're insecure or we're, we're giving in to our own discouragement and disappointment, we're, we pray ourselves into unbelief about our own pain. And instead of being people who are being led by the truth, we become people who give in to the lies. See, no matter how difficult it gets, the difficulty is not saying that we're losing. The difficulty is saying that we need, we really need to understand that the kingdom is not fully yet evident and it is our responsibility in this generation to pray his kingdom come, his will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Because see, if his kingdom comes, injustice flees. If his kingdom comes, sickness doesn't have a chance. If his kingdom comes, then there's food to eat and there's, there's, there's social concern that results in social healing. But you see, if, if all you want are the benefits of the kingdom without the king, then you will not. You'll restrain the evil in the world, perhaps, but that's the best you can do. So when you're in trouble, instead of saying it's not working, when you're in trouble, say it's working and the enemy is trying to rise up against us. And right now I don't need less hunger for, for, for the word of God or for God or for his kingdom. Right now I need greater hunger. Because what I need to see happen in my world is more than what I can do on my own, but which will be evident if the kingdom is present and if the kingdom is in our midst. Because the kingdom of God is the work of the Holy Spirit who makes the king real and present right in our midst. And that, friends, according to way Jesus prayed, that happens when there are enough people hungry for the kingdom, who are hungry for God, who have a great love and a great regard for his word. John Calvin had an interesting statement, but it really, it's really based on the wisdom of Proverbs. But he said it this way. He said, the word of God flows away from the wicked. I heard a story this week that illustrated this in a very powerful way. One of the great advocates and proponents of destroying slavery, the abolition of slavery, was a man by the name of Wilber, Wilberforce, William Wilberforce. And he was a godly man. He loved, he loved the scriptures. He loved the word of God. And his whole motivation to destroy the the slave trade in, in Great Britain was his love for God and his love for the gospel and his love for the kingdom. And he was friends with the prime minister, William Pitt. And he thought, if I could just get Pitt to hear this one preacher preach, then he will be moved and we will see this change. So he goes to service. He gets his friend, the prime minister, to go to the service with him. And this great preacher is preaching. And Wilberforce says that he was so moved. He said, 
the words of the scripture and the words of the preaching cut me to the quick. And he said, he was so happy, he said, I'm so glad my friend was here. He will be touched by the word of God in such a way, just as I have been. As he was leaving, and he had tears in his eyes, and he had such, such hope in his heart, and he's leaving, William Pitt looks at him and said, I didn't understand a word of what that preacher said. You see, here's Wilberforce, hearing the same sermon, his, his heart truth-sensitized. Here's William Pitt, and the word was flowing away from him. I'm asking you this question. Is the word flowing away from you? Or are you like the Apostle Paul who said, the commandment came to me. It slew me, but it healed me. As you begin to think about this idea of receiving the word, basically we're just talking about you begin to cooperate with the word. You let it cut away everything that is keeping you from God. You realize if the word is cutting something away, it's not the, it's not the, it's not the sword of an enemy. It's the blade of a surgeon who loves you. The other thing that receiving the word and accepting the word really means is this. There is not a word that God ever gives you where you're to stay only as a student. Every follower of Jesus Christ, every person in the church is both a student and a teacher for their whole lives. Scripture is really clear. There must be a growth in your life from milk to meat. In other words, there's a, there's a content, there's a body of truth, and that body of truth must be, must be mastered. It can't just be that you sort of do like we do in, in high school where we just take a subject in order to pass the test and then we forget it forever. This truth is so powerful and so real and becomes so important in the life of a hungry believer that you will, not, you will not satisfy just to know it for a moment. You have to be mastered by it, and you have to master it. Let me give you a, let me give you a quick illustration of that. When Lisa and I did, were called, or initially, we were called to be missionaries in a Spanish-speaking country, and we were called to plant churches in that country, and I knew I had to, I had to become you know, fluent in the language if I was going to preach the gospel. And I had, I had zero Spanish background whatsoever. And so we went to Costa Rica. We spent a year there learning Spanish. I became kind of a crazy man because I wanted to master Spanish. I didn't simply do as I did in, in school where I said, okay, what is the professor going to want on the test? Let me learn that. No, I wanted to communicate. I wanted to be able to understand what others were communicating. But more than anything else, I wanted to be able to communicate the truth of God's word. And I knew I, I, it wasn't enough just to have conversational Spanish. I had to get to where I could preach in Spanish and I could be effective preaching in Spanish. And I remember there came a, a, there came a time when my brain sort of freaked out on me. And, and it was a situation sort of like this. Are you willing, it felt like the, my brain was saying, are you willing to cross over into Spanish? If you do, you will start dreaming in Spanish. You will start you know, basically no longer just seeing things in English, and you will, you, you will lose all the peripheral things of English. And, and even like spelling, which I was really good at, I became very bad at in English. But in, but in order to master another language, that language had to master me. And this is, this is what Jesus is praying for you and me. Is not only do, will we kind of use the Bible as an instruction book when we're in trouble. Or, or, or kind of like a, oh, well, what would God want me to do? Let me, let me flip around in the Bible and see if I can get some insight. No. I mean, I understand. I can't make you do this. But if there's a hunger in you, then that's the Holy Spirit. And he's saying, I want you to master the language of truth. And I want the language of truth to master you. You have to move from milk to meat. 
Because there's no spiritual wisdom without a mastery of the word. Hebrews 5.14, solid food is for the mature, for those who have been, who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. See, this is not, and I, I meet people all the time who are basically saying, I know what's right to do, but I'm not going to do it. They know, you see, if there's one thing in your life where you're saying, I know God wants me to do this, but I'm never going to do it, that's where you'll stay for the rest of your life. And you, even milk won't really won't have that great of a taste of the milk of God's word, but you definitely will never go to the meat because you cannot be disobedient and accept God's word at the same time. You cannot rebel and be under the authority of God's word. But this is, this is those who are saying, I'm coming into circumstances. I'm, I'm, I'm facing challenges that I don't know what the right thing is to do. Then the scripture says, if you are saturated with the word of God, if the word of God has mastered you, then what you'll see is his word will come to you. I remember the first time I ever heard Rob Reamer talk about being in situations that he didn't quite know what to do, but he would step aside and he would say, Theology 101, God is smart and knows things that you don't know. And it's such a simple truth, but this is the interesting thing of those of us who have learned, I've got to be devoted to his word so that I know what to do in any circumstance. I, I've got to have his word master me. And I have his word saturated in my heart. Well, this leads to actually obedience to the word. You're both a student and you're a teacher. You're not just trying to pass the test of some other teacher. You're, both, you're wanting to learn something so well that you can teach it to others. You know you've mastered something when you can teach it. You, anybody who teaches knows you learn more than anybody else because you have to be able to communicate it well and effectively to others. And really and truly to know God's word and not be obedient, you've lost everything. It's really practicing the word of God that leads to the other four elements of this kind of revival dynamic. Worship, evangelism, fellowship, social concern, these are all mandated in the Bible. These are all explained and, and detailed in the Bible. So anybody who's really regarding the truth and keeping the truth and obeying the truth is going to see all five elements present at the same time. One writer said it this way, the blueprint of revival work of the Holy Spirit is a revival of scriptural knowledge, a vital, healthy spirituality, of practical obedience. Wherever you see authentic spiritual life rising up from a state of comparative depression to a tone of increased vigor and strength, this is the work of the Holy Spirit to bring authentic spiritual life to Christ's people. Uh, why did I put this quote? It's very simple. I think, I think all of us, through COVID, through the tensions in our nation, through the injustices that we've seen, I think all of us have a low-level depression. I know that we have a low, at least a low-level anxiety that just below the surface is fear and just below the surface is insecurity and a questioning, will we ever be normal again? Will it ever be safe again? Will we ever be all right again? And it's boiling up in some into anger and it's boiling up into some into violence and it's boiling up into all kinds of things. But friends, below the surface emotionally, people are feeling a depression and they are feeling a tension of anxiety. The only thing that remedies that, because our anxiety and our depression are based on lies. They are hope in assumptions that are not true instead of hope in the certainty of God's word. And so when we, when we go back and we say, Lord, instead of hungering for security, instead of trying to make my life uh, under control, I'm going to rest myself. I'm going to trust and rely 
on the truth and the certainty of your word, then what rises up is vigor, strength, passion, instead of depression. And it's an authentic spirituality that overcomes every obstacle. But we have to begin to be the people who put into practice the words of Jesus. Not mere hearers, but doers. Another author that I like said it this way. How can they believe the one whom they have not heard? This indicates that preaching the gospel is not simply a case of a human minister speaking, but rather the speaking of the Lord Jesus himself. Preaching is Christ's own witness. A famous Reformation preacher wrote this, God deigns to consecrate to himself the mouths and the tongues of men in order that his voice may resound in them. So much, this is, this is kind of where the rubber meets the road of Jesus' prayer and his request. So much is this the case that God has ordained and deigned to speak through his minister. Listen to this. That the one who hears the minister hears the Lord Jesus Christ. And the one who rejects the minister, who is faithful and true to the scriptures and to our Savior, is refusing to hear the Lord Jesus Christ. Let me get even a little more blunt. It has been fascinating to me in my 37 years of being a regular preacher or teacher of the Word of God how little importance people give to the Word. Now, I'm sure that what they could often say, well, I don't like this style, I don't like the voice, I don't like these jokes, I don't like this or that. I'm sure people could find all kinds of reasons to not listen. But you understand that the reviving work of your heart, the reviving work of our church, the reviving work of our, of our community is through the word of God and it does not depend on the skills or the abilities of the preacher. It's actually an extraordinary work of the Holy Spirit that is received by the hungry people. See, what the Holy Spirit does is he anoints the preaching so that the preacher is making the appeal of Christ. And he anoints the listener so their hearts are truth sensitized, so that they are filled with hunger for the word. And when those two things come together, extraordinary results happen. But what do we see? We see people, you know, basically saying, well, good preaching is preaching I already agree with. Good preaching is preaching that affirms what I already think. Well, that's not necessarily the word of God, which is tearing down the walls and building a whole new life for you. If it's going to really be the revival dynamic, you're going to have to value it even if it hurts. You're going to have to say, I've got to stoke this flame of hunger for his word. Which, see, what I'm really saying is that hunger for the word is a hunger for the king. And it's a hunger for the kingdom and for what's true of the kingdom. And they all go together. A hunger for the word of God, a hunger for the king, a hunger for his kingdom. Because the kingdom is only going to appear in relationship to his word. I don't care what we're facing, friends. The kingdom will resolve it all. It will make racial equality. It will make gender equality. It will destroy disease. It will destroy the sense of, of, of classism and ageism and, and all of these other things. The kingdom of God is righteousness, peace, love, and joy in the Holy Spirit. But we don't get the kingdom by wishful thinking. We get the kingdom by hungering for the word. Our God is a covenantal God, friends. In other words, his, his love for us is a committed love, and a committed love has boundaries. You shall have no other gods before me. He's saying, you can't be in covenant with me if you're giving yourself to other gods. That's a covenant. That's the boundary of the covenant. 
when we get married, we say we're going to save ourselves and we're going to give ourselves only to our spouse. We can't do it to somebody else and be in covenant. But here's the beauty of covenant is that whatever God has done before, he loves to do again. So part of why you might say, well, Mike, I can't, uh, I can't really listen to you. You talk too long. <laughs> and I understand that. And, uh, and maybe, maybe it is easier to listen to shorter, lighter but I think this is what Jesus wants from us, is to have a hunger for what he's done before to do again. And it's not, it's not light. It's deep. It's heavy. It's glorious. Let me finish with one story. The 21st of June is a major spiritual holiday in Scotland. And the reason is that back in 1630, so this is a long time ago, but back in 1630, there was a gathering of hungry people for Jesus. And they came together to do communion, celebrate communion. And they asked a young man by the name of Livingston, they asked him if he would preach that communion service. And so what he did being a young man, he recognized how inexperienced he was. He recognized that there were many very capable, effective ministers in the crowd, and they'd all be listening to it. So John Livingston, this young man, said, said I'm going to get away, and, and I'm going to go to God in prayer. So he began to pray. He found a place apart from all the people, and he began to ask God for power. And he said, what text do I preach on? And his, his whole thought was, I want to extend the kingdom of God to affect this community and this people. And the Lord gave him Ezekiel chapter 36. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your impurities and from all your idols. I will give you a new heart and I'll put a new spirit in you. I'll remove you from you, your heart of stone, and I will give you a heart of flesh. For the next hour and a half, Livingston expounded on that text, and the people hung on every word. The move of the Spirit was so evident across the face of this great congregation. Even as he was expositing the scripture, rain began to fall. And as the rain fell, people didn't leave. They started crying out from the depths of their being. And Livingston was led, it says, to, to speak for another hour. Addressing himself then to the unconverted in their midst, God came down. And the preaching was so majestic, so glorious, God was so manifestly presence, present in the midst of his people that on every side, men and women, both of high station, low station, they were crying out, Sir, what must we do to be saved? That day, 500 were converted. Why do I tell you that story? Well, isn't that exactly what they said at Pentecost? Sir, what must we do to be saved? Our God is a covenantal God. What he's done before, he loves to do again. I'm asking you to want what Jesus wants. Jesus wants you to want his word. Can we go before him and ask him to do it again? Lord Jesus, your Father heard your prayer. And we have seen example after example in history where not just in an ordinary way, but in an extraordinary way, your word came upon people. Your, the king was present with his people. The kingdom was present in their community. The kingdom was present in their church, in their family. Well, I don't believe this is merely a developmental thing where it just kind of gets better and better. We are in dire times. We are facing difficult circumstances. Some, some of them feel almost impossible, that our nation, which is so divided, could come into a place of true justice and true uh, equality. Seems 
like nothing but a quarrel and a fight. But where your kingdom is, there's peace, there's unity, there's blessing, there's favor. I'm hungry. I'm asking that our people would be hungry too. Holy Spirit, would you, would you separate out all other hungers that we would hunger for the kingdom, that we would hunger for your word, that we would hunger for truth, that we would not take it lightly and only accept a little, but that we would have the capacity to receive it all. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.